Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast, broadcast from 3CR, your only radio left. Susanna here with you, and I'll be joined by other members of my Left After Breakfast team as the program continues. Your favourites for a start. So, welcome to regular listeners and indeed to anyone who has just tuned in. Good on you. Now, you don't often hear me speak about Elvis Presley, so this is a first for you. Yes, I will be speaking about Elvis. Nothing too exciting or too dreadful. I've been reading about all the films that Elvis wanted to be in, but didn't get to be in. He blamed his manager, the colonel, and said the colonel couldn't get him these parts, but that story may not be quite correct. For example, let's have a look at how his big screen career could have been very different. The Rainmaker, 1956. Now that was the year that Elvis landed his first film role in Love Me Tender. But he did screen test for The Rainmaker, a Depression-era drama starring Burt Lancaster as a con man who hoodwinks a small town and falls in love with the middle-aged spinster, Catherine Hepburn. Elvis auditioned for the role of Hepburn's brother, but according to the film's screenwriter, he showed the acting ability of the lead in a high school play, and the part instead went to Earl Holliman. Then there was Thunder Road in 1958. Robert Mitchum had seen Elvis on stage before he was famous and apparently they remained friends once Elvis hit Hollywood. One night at a party, Mitchum told Elvis he should audition for the part of his younger brother in Thunder Road, a moonshine fueled chase thriller. However, this one the Colonel did veto because it wasn't a musical. So Elvis didn't get to play Robert Mitchum's younger brother in Thunder Road, 1958. But here's a good one. Here's a good one. In 1958, Elvis auditioned for the role of Brick Pollock in the adaptation of Tennessee Williams' play about an alcoholic former high school athlete trying to recapture his glory days and resisting the affections of his wife, Maggie the Cat, or Elizabeth Taylor. But Elvis didn't get that role. The part of Brick Pollock went to Paul Newman. Cat on a hot tin roof. Can you imagine Elvis playing Paul Newman's part? (laughs) By 1958, Elvis had made his first three movies. That's Love Me Tender, Loving You, and Jailhouse Rock. But now he was keen to play something else. He wanted to play the role of John Joker Jackson, opposite Sidney Poitier, in The Defiant Ones, 
about a black and a white escaped convict who are shackled together. Fantastic film. But once again, he didn't get the role and it went to Tony Curtis. Both Tony and the film were Oscar nominated. The Defiant Ones, 1958. Can you imagine with Elvis Presley? And then West Side Story, 1961. Elvis was considered for the part of Tony in West Side Story, but he didn't think a film about street gangs would be good for his image. Well, there you go. We were saved again. Then there was Sweet Bird of Youth, 1962. Well, Elvis didn't have much luck when it came to parts in Tennessee Williams' adaptations, parts that eventually went to Paul Newman. He was approached to play Chance Wayne, a drifter. Well, a sanitised version of the play's gigolo. A drifter who has a relationship with a faded movie star. But Elvis turned down that role because he didn't want to play a seedy character. Your Cheatin' Heart, 1964. MGM considered Elvis for the lead in their Hank Williams biopic. However, Williams' widow, Audrey Williams, intervened, saying she didn't want Elvis in it. She didn't give any reason, but the part eventually went to George Hamilton. I'm not sure which one of them would have been better playing Hank. Valley of the Dolls in 1967. It has been rumoured that the author Jacqueline Suzanne wanted Elvis to play the crooner Tony Polar in the screen adaptation of her Hollywood potboiler, but the studio ignored her request. Elvis probably had a lucky escape on that one. The film was a disaster. It has to be one of the worst movies of all time. Midnight Cowboy, 1969. Elvis was considered for the role of Joe Buck, a naive Texas hustler trying to make it in New York. This was turned down too because it was too seedy. Elvis didn't want to play a seedy character. Now that was a near miss that probably hurt more than the rest of them. That film won three Oscars, as well as Best Actor nominations for both John Voight as Joe and for his co-star Dustin Hoffman. Now we come to an even better one. The Godfather, 1972. Elvis was a huge fan of Mario Puzzo's novel and he wanted to play a role in it, in a film of The Godfather. Various sources suggest that he was asked to screen test for the part of Consigliere Tom Hagen. That part went to Robert Duvall. But the same sources suggest that he was lobbying for the title role. That he wanted to play the Godfather. <laughs> oh, excuse me. He wanted to play the Godfather. We have been saved over the years by not having Elvis in films. Poor Elvis. You can't always get what you want. 3CR and of course, I will have to play an Elvis recording, won't I? Here's one from 1955. With Elvis on the vocals, of course, and rhythm guitar. Scotty Moore on the lead and Bill Black on the bass. 
and right towards the end you can hear an echo of 16 Tons by Mel Travis. Fabulous musicians, really good recording. I should have listened to these early Sun recordings when Elvis was a fashion. I just wouldn't listen because I didn't want to listen. I was into jazz at the time. listener listening to Elvis Presley well I'll tell you what you weren't doing you weren't listening to 3CR because we weren't broadcasting then we've been broadcasting since very early 1976 and I want to thank you all again for the support you gave us during our radiothon last month it was bloody wonderful of you and thanks again and by the way P.S. If you haven't paid up your pledge yet, you know what to do. You can give us a ring on 94198377 just to refresh your memory about how you do that. It's you, listener, who keep us on air and have kept us on air since 1976. And that's something to be proud of. Good on you. Good on you twice. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au 
or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. And let's hear from the 3CR resident historian, Glenn. I'm going to speak about wages for housework. Wages for housework, my word. Well, way back in 1972, the Wages for Housework campaign was launched and uh, the headline in the US magazine National Enquirer said, Hey fellas, could you afford $48,000 of high-bridge women? Guess what a housewife is worth? Clare workers, housewives, child carers, cleaners, shifts, dishwashers, nurses and family counsellors. And the Wages for Housework campaign kicked off 50 years ago this year, 1972. So that was in 1972, yeah. That's right. It was kicked off by the International Feminist Collective and the Conference of Padova, Italy. And it spread with campaigns. US, UK, Canada, Italy. Italy. And they realised that women do so much unpaid work and like, where's the recognition for it? I mean, the caring work isn't a volatile destiny or love that's done. It's because of capitalism, that work needs a wage. And women's unpaid labour isn't accounted in GDP. It's not true I'm as sorry, real. I'm sorry, what? Women's unpaid labour isn't accounted for in the GDP. It's uh, not measured. Women's unpaid labour is not accounted for in no. the GDP. Housework, you know, the cleaning of the dishes, changing the nappies, mowing the lawn, whatever. None of it's packed up from GDP. And it's essential for capitalism to reproduce itself. These work gets, gets done, but it's not paid for. So the wages for housework campaign kicked off 50 years ago this year. And they said, all women are workers who get the cogs of capitalism turning. And we should have a return for it, a recognition for it, you know? The question of housework was a question about the term conditions for all women was one of the views put forward. I have a book I studied it well, years about that time called The Sociology of Housework. Yep. It's a good book. I still have it. Well, people like Nicole Cox and uh, Emma Federici made it quite clear in their booklet, you know, counterplaying from the kitchen, Wages for housework. That is a line being artificial love in work and non-work. About housework is considered non-work compared to wage labour. And this is part of the push for you know, the wages for housework campaign. This is real work, you know. Changing nappies isn't like, it isn't a fa- it's a real job to keep the family going, to keep the system going. Anyway, the wages of housework campaign we went out through the 70s and it, it organised women in different areas, different parts of the workforce. And we saw the first prostitutes collective. We saw black women for wages for housework. And um, there's different ways it manifests itself. The women's work was a form of labour, a of recognition. And it combined theory with actual hard yards and politicisation. And um, somehow we've lost our way over the last few decades. And no longer this campaign has been forgotten about. And women work harder than ever in the home. Women work harder than ever raising families, their social reproduction. But there's no recognition for it. And um, again, no government counted in the GDP. Housework is not recognised. Uh, we know back in 1975, the UN said, OK, we should consider you know, housework as part of GDP. But it wasn't taken any further. So, um, yeah, 50 years down the track, the wages of housework campaign is as relevant as ever. And we can learn from that. And so, you know, you making the sandwiches, you changing the nappies, that is work. Just as much as a man pressing a button in a stock exchange or driving a train. But some people have lost these well, things. Driving a train's a bit more like work than 
sitting in the stock exchange. Well, but they consider work. They consider productive pressing buttons to make money. You know, aren't they the real workers, the, the entrepreneurs, the risk takers? And that's called work, you know, pressing buttons to make money. Whereas, you know, raising four kids at home, you know, feeding, cleaning, isn't considered work. As I keep saying, 50 years ago, the wages of the housework campaign was kicked off. And has it been forgotten? Has it been bypassed? What's happened? But it's good to recall those lessons and those struggles. It's been totally ignored 50 years down the track. It's still ignored as it was then. Well? I think it was just... um it's not wages for housework, it's for wages for a carer. People get paid to be a carer. I suppose you should be paid to care for someone, to be their nurse, to uh, go and shopping and buy food and cook for them and feed them and clean up after them and then clean their clothes. Oh, look, in my job, I'm the age of carers. I encounter quite a few carers working amongst the cohort I work with. But again, they're paid carers and so many, many more. Women, especially unpaid carers, and, yeah, at least carers are recognised to an extent of a wage. But the unpaid caring, you know, and how many women have to raise not just their children, but maybe their husband or their parents. And that work, raising those families, isn't recognised in GDP. And if you could put a monetary value to it, what would it be worth? So, anyway, I think it's good to just resurrect these things again and discuss the fact this campaign started 50 years ago. And let's put it back on the radar. Wages for housework? I say go for it. Yeah, go for it indeed. Housework is such a chore You make the beds, do the dishes, dust the piano, clean the floor And then Three months later hmm, You've got to go back and do it all again Dish building up in the sink
3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. I wanted to tell you about an amazing woman called Jean Burns. Jean Burns of Melbourne. She was born in 1920 and she was an aviation trailblazer. Oh, when I think about it, I get all butterflies in my stomach. She was never afraid of taking challenges when she grew up and at the age of 14, she joined the Junior Victorian Aero Club and when she was almost 17, she started flying lessons in Essendon. I suppose Essendon is the perfect place to take your flying lessons It's a very high part of town. That's why they built the airport up there. Jean created history when she obtained her pilot's licence in 1937 and she became Australia's youngest ever female pilot. There's something else that Jean did that, oh my word, she had this amazing spirit of adventure, that's for sure. She became the first woman to parachute from a plane at Essendon Aerodrome on Sunday the 21st of November 1937. Well, that's something to go down in history about, isn't it? The height of the jump was 975 metres. 975 metres. That's 3,200 feet, approximately. And this parachute jump came out because of a bet with another pilot. She said, one day at Essendon Airport, we were watching a parachute descend and one of the club's pilots said he wouldn't leave a plane like that even if it were on fire. I said, I would. Nothing to it. Just pop out, pull the ripcord and float down. He bet me that I would not be game if he could arrange it. So arrange it he did. I got into a plane with another pilot and once we were well over 3,100 feet... I said, this is it. And I popped out, pulled my ripcord and floated down. So after this jump, the Department of Civil Aviation threatened her with prosecution if she did it again, but later relented if she followed a set of rules. Jean didn't believe those rules had ever existed before and they never had existed before and they had never applied to men. But she didn't care. 
because she'd broken another barrier for all women. We lost Jean at the age of 99. That was in 2019. But I'll tell you what, her achievements haven't been forgotten. I didn't know about them before, but I'm certainly not going to forget them now. Jean Burns. What a woman. The first one to jump out of a plane. Well, something, isn't it? 3CR And you have to remember at the time that Jean Burns, as a teenager, was getting her pilot's licence to fly around in a plane and then parachuting out of one, that that was the same year, 1937, that Amelia Earhart took her last flight and disappeared somewhere over the Great Pacific Ocean. Or somewhere. We don't know what happened to Amelia. She may still be flying around out there. But I tell you what, I raise my glass or my hot cuppa to all those women who get up in aeroplanes and fly them, especially those pioneers. How scary it must have been. How absolutely frightening. But they did it. They did it. There's a ship out on the ocean Just a speck against the sky A million hearts playing out that day With their captain, Captain
pray that she'll return home safe someday. Though many others travel, her path along the way will always remember Amelia and her plane. There's a beautiful, beautiful Good morning, you're listening to 3CR, the only radio left. And let's hear from comrade Natasha, the working class poet. Capital assumes living labour into itself, as though love possessed its body. Karl Marx, Grandis. I'm joining the campaign for shorter working hours since love has taken possession of my heart. I want the extra time to smell the flowers and the leisure to appreciate fine art. Love's labour lives inside the body corporate, dying to put its hands to work, the change in the hours bought for more or less the rate applied to satisfy industrial exchange. In 79, the Union Carbide men stood strong, sitting in for the 35-hour week. The women stocked the strike cupboard for the long haul when hopes of victory seemed bleak. The eight-hour day, a long-held labour myth, now staring at the hands of time long past, ironic on a face that smiles with an expression that experience knows won't last. To seize the moment when the chains are loose is a decisive act that sets the body free from the bonds of capital. To choose an act of love that binds not only you and me, but all those other bodies kneeling at the shrine of security. With unemployment close at hand, the moment there's a problem on the line, as soon as overtime is really banned. For greed consumes us all like cancer, devouring labour for its malignant growth, an hourly rate that denies the dancer in our life to pledge a troth that integrates work, rest and play above the demands for greater exploitation, so that the body, in possession of true love, respects its duty to create its recreation. So, I've joined the ranks of those who call on those who would make our bodies slaves of capital, for freedom and dignity for all, until our children place fresh flowers on our grave. 3CR
Well, good morning, Bagman. I'm very good this morning, Susan. Hello to all your loyal listeners. We're going to have a bit of a a say on what's been happening in the news. I want to just give your listeners a disclaimer. Because of COVID, we can't go into the studio, so we have to record this Wednesday afternoon for playing on Friday morning. So we can't be totally up to date with what's happening out there in the big bad world. That's pretty well up to date. Yeah, pretty well. We we seem to do a, a reasonable job. But, Susan, I'm a bit disappointed. I'm going to be a a lot disappointed before the show is finished, but the IBAC uh, recommendation by Robert Redlich has just been made available to us. It was only disclosed on Wednesday, so I haven't had a chance to look at it properly, but I'm very, very disappointed in the Labor government, especially the right-wing factions of the Labor government who have indulged themselves in brand-stacking nepotism, forgery, but according to Robert Redlich, there will be no charges laid against those people that have tried to bring the Labor Party down for their own power. That's the Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission. That's right, Susan, that's exactly right, and that's what it is. But apparently Robert Redlich, whom I've known for 50 years and obviously he was a good judge and he was a good lawyer but he's constrained by what he can recommend to go to the police for prosecution now if we had a proper investigation australia-wide which is the labor party is planning to do we would be a lot better off because there's a lot of people out there mainly that were influential in the coalition that are going to spend some time in the go slow. They're going home in the back of a divvy van. Well, I won't be too distressed by that. I can think of quite a number I'd like to see go home in the back of a divvy van. That's right. And uh, we're going to take into account that the traitors like Adam Sumerak and Marlene Carews and their electoral officers have been named in this uh, inquiry, but they won't be charged with any criminal offence. And one of the people that I'm interested in is a family member of a well-known trade union family. A family member? Yes. Well, I won't be naming him, Susan, because I have more respect for the radio station that we both work for, but it will come out in time. I'm just not prepared to do it right at the moment. We won't talk about Adam Sumerak. Well, him and Marlene Carews and Robin Scott and the other people that were involved in the brand stacking, the nepotism, the forgery of documents. Now, if you were to forge a document, Susan, what would happen to you? Well, we know what would happen to me. And I'll be trying to raise the money for your bail, Susan, but apparently politicians are treated different than normal working class people and that's what makes me so disappointed susan about the labor party at the moment Three 
How many people have to die in this state and in this country before mandates will be issued about wearing masks? Now, wearing masks is only a simple matter, making people do the right thing. Now, you know and I know, and many of the people that are out there listening to this program went along with Dan Andrews and the medical advice that he gave us every day for about 200 days. But now they seem to want to not take any medical advice into account and not issue uh, mandates for wearing masks. And people are dying. And if people are dying, then we have to have a long, hard look at the government of this state and this country. Why don't we have a mask mandate? Well, you don't, Susan, because it's individual responsibility. And you take into account, once again, as a woman called Monica Spit or Monica Smith, who encouraged people to march on the streets. She encouraged people to break the pandemic laws. She was held in remand for 22 days, but now the Victorian police have dropped the charges against her. What does that say to the people on our front line, that the nurses, the doctors, the paramedics, the police, that this person could have her charges dropped? I make no call about her guilt or not. The police have dropped their charges, but it just makes me very, very disappointed. Yes, I note you say disappointed, not absolutely fuming with anger. No, just disappointed, Susan. Uh, We, as a citizenship, have to take individual responsibility, and that means wearing a mask wherever you're going, in the shops, in the chemist, in the bottle shop, to guard against transferring any deadly virus that is going around at the moment. Bagman, I couldn't help but notice your choice of language then, your choice of your English words. It's a bit like, oh, I wonder what Freud would say when you said, and people go out as they usually do, shopping, the chemist and the bottle shop. It seems to me that's where you go. Now we know where the bagman goes shopping. <laughs> I've got to admit, Susan, it's a, a personal thing, but everybody in the chemist in my suburb knows me by name. And I go next door to the liquor shop, and we're not allowed to advertise here, but it's a well-known liquor shop, well-known bottle shop, and the same thing happens there. Every person that works for that establishment knows me by name. (laughs) It's a sad indictment. No, it just lets me know what you do during the day. 3C. My disappointment goes out once again to a bloke called Tim Smith, who is a liberal politician, or at least he will be until the next election. Now, if you remember Tim Smith, yeah, he was the bloke that drove home drunk as a monkey and crashed into a house and crashed into a young lady's bedroom. He's been watching the footy. Now, I like a game of footy. And I, I also like the game between the NRL between New South Wales and Queensland. Queensland has won the latest match, but Tim Smith put in writing. You wonder what these people think. He says 
so reassuring to see some biffo and some passion and some old-fashioned Australian masculinity at the state of origin. The pathetically woke AFL should take note. AFL is now unrecognisable for, for so many supporters. They don't want another woke round. They want a biffo round. Now, this is a politician that should be trying to say to the people of this state, violence is not okay. Domestic violence is not okay. Yet this bloke promotes biffo. 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 What a stupid word. He wants to see violence at the footy game. Yeah. He wants to see blood. Well, if you want, if you want to see violence at the football game, you'll maybe want to see or perpetrate violence in your workplace, in your home. It sends a very bad message. Tim Smith, he won't be around for long. We've got him till the next election. Dim Tim, uh, he's called. Dim Tim Tim. Hey, wasn't that great about Scott Morrison addressing Margaret Court Church? I'm not too sure what their church is called. Margaret Smith, what's her name? Margaret, oh, Margaret Court. Margaret Court. Yes. She married them into the Court family. Did she? Oh, Margaret speaks in tongues and Scotty hears voices. A match made in heaven. I want to be careful what I say here, but... We didn't have a Prime Minister for the last three years. What we had was a cult leader. Well, you could say that, yes, but isn't that what Margaret Court is? Yes, that's right. Yeah, speaking in tongues and whatever. It does really make you wonder who has been running this country for the last three years. Well, we could go back nine years and say who has been running this country. Now, Susan... I want to thank those people who gave money to our Radiothon to keep your very popular radio program on the air. People like Eric Person, Joy Phillips, Juliet Fox, Joseph Malignaghi, Glenn Davis, Paul Adams and John Mazzarini and Neil Blake. Now, I think Neil Blake, he has a nickname, doesn't he? Captain Trash. Captain Trash. All right. And also those people like uh, Jan Bartlett, uh, Loretta O'Brien and Anne Taylor who gave generously to our Radiothon. Without them, we wouldn't have a radio station. We wouldn't have a 3CR. So thank you once again to those people. And I should say, Bagman... That Joe Melanagi oh, right. okay. uh, runs a good program on 3CR. It's called Music Sans Frontier. Oh, good, good, good. Good luck to him. And thank you once again to all those people that have given generously to your program. And thank you to the regular uh, people on the program, the BL from the Bush and Gwen Davis. and Yourself. Yeah, I get a mention every now and then, but, uh, you know, I look forward to going into the studio at some time, but we have to abide by the COVID rules, and we do abide by the COVID rules, and we are not going to spread our de- deadly virus all over this state. Yes, because you never know who you might have been sitting next to on the boat. 
I said boat because I've just got off a boat myself about an hour ago. I've been on a boat today. Oh, really? I went to Geelong on the boat. Is there and, a boat that goes to Geelong? Yes, there is, and I came back on the boat. And how do I go about catching the boat to Geelong? It's, it isn't a joke bag, man. This was the real thing that happened to me today. I went down to Docklands to the Port Villa yeah. Ferry Terminal yeah. and, hopped, yeah. and hopped on the ferry to Geelong. Well, there you go, Susan. I would uh, would never have thought that there was a boat that went from uh, the Port of Melbourne to the Port of Geelong. It was a lovely, lovely ride too on a beautiful day, beautiful day, not a cloud in the sky. Yeah. Well, that's good. Uh, maybe we can advertise that more often, and I might even think about going for a ride on the boat to Geelong. Oh, you could go to Port Arlington. I'm going to go there in a couple of weeks on the same ferry. Oh, well, there you go. Hey, good news uh, this week, Susan, because Victoria Police have paid a settlement worth thousands of dollars to an age photographer who was pepper sprayed twice in the face by officers while covering an anti-lockdown protest last year. I can relate to this, Susan, because I wear my media accreditation around my neck and I have said to the police on at least two occasions, here is my authority, I'm here to take photographs only to be thrown violently to the ground and handcuffed. So good luck to that age photographer getting thousands of dollars for being pepper sprayed. It must be a horrible experience. Dreadful. You should be wearing your UN flak jacket bag, man. Oh, look, yeah, Yeah, I I suppose I should, Susan, but, uh, you know, I had to leave that that, uh, flak jacket in Bosnia because it cost me $1,500 to buy. So I had to sell it before I came back to Melbourne. But I'm going to be telling you on Facebook what happened to me in Zagreb in the Catholic Cathedral in Zagreb when I got onto the altar by myself to photograph the old Pope John Paul. We'll leave that to another day, Susan. Well, you can beg, man, but I actually know what happened. I'm not <laughs> going to tell. I won't no, tell. That's all right. Uh, it was a frightening experience, and I'm sure that someone said to the Pope, that bloke shouldn't be on the altar with you. I won't tell people about your um, <laughs> about your weekend in Naples either. Oh, no, that was another. That's another story I could put uh, onto Facebook, Susan. But, look, if anybody wants to contact me, uh, it's the worst secret in town. Now, uh, you can contact me by email, dennisevans101 at gmail, and Dennis is spelt with one N. Or they can go to my website, dennisevans.com, and, and make a statement there. Uh, let's go out in the same old way, Susan. Oh, why not, Bagman? Dare to struggle. Dare to win. If you don't fight. Yellows. Yellows. Well done, dude. Good morning from Left After Breakfast. The bagman, of course, will want a song now. He's taken it into his head that he must have a little bit of a musical interlude, as he calls it. 
It's actually a musical finale, but I'm not going to tell him that. Joe Hill was asked to write a song for those Southern Pacific Railroad workers. Uh, so he took a popular tune of the day and threw a new set of words at it and wrote a song about union scabbing. Then he wrote a little note to the industrial worker in which he said, Union scabbing is as if you're about to be hung. And as you were led to the scaffold, the executioner turned to you and said, Gee, I hate to do this. But if it's any consolation, the scaffold was built by union carpenters. The rope was made by union rope makers. And here, sir, is my card. That is union scabbing. Oh, the workers on the SP line to strike sent out a call. But Casey Jones, the union scabby, wouldn't strike at all. His boilers, they was leaking, and his drivers on the bomb. And the engine and the bearings, they was all out of plumb. But Casey Jones, he kept his junk pile running. Casey Jones, he was working double time. But Casey Jones, he got a wooden medal for being good and faithful to the SP line. And now the workers said to Casey, won't you help us win this strike? He said, you'd better go along, go on and take a hike. And someone threw a bunch of railroad ties across the track. And Casey hit the bottom with an awful smack. But Casey Jones, he hit the river bottom. Casey Jones, he broke his blooming spine. But Casey Jones, he was an Angelino. I took a trip to heaven on the SB line. Now Casey got to heaven to the pearly gates. He said, I'm Casey Jones, the guy that all the SP freight. You're just the man, said Peter, our musicians went on strike. You can get a job of scabbing any time you like. Yeah, Casey Jones, he got up into heaven. Casey Jones, he's doing mighty fine. But Casey Jones went to scabbing on the angels like he done to workers on the SP line. And now the angels got together, said it was not fair for Casey Jones to go around a scabbing everywhere. And Angels Local 23, they sure was there. And they promptly fired Casey down the golden stair. But Casey Jones, he went to hell a-flying. Casey Jones and the devil said, oh, fine. But Casey Jones, get busy shoveling sulfur. And watch again for scabbing on the SP line. Okay, everyone. That's it for this episode. Thanks for your company. Thanks for the ride. See you next week. Same time, same place. Until then, cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast.